So Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to begin, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the book tonight. We'll be finishing up Matthew. So when I get back from uh, this vacation, we will go back to where we were in the Old Testament, and we'll start the book of Job. So you have two weeks now to read Job chapters 1 through 5 for the next time. Join me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our Bible study. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, for another opportunity. We thank you for this great land in which we live, the freedoms that we possess to come and to worship you as we please. And Lord, we please to to get in your word because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. Lord, it pleases us to study the scriptures And Lord, I know it pleases you when we do. Lord, help us to approach the passages tonight, not just as hearers of the word, but as doers also. And and Lord, may your word tonight shape our thinking, challenge our assumptions, and perhaps most importantly, change our behavior. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts, and we dedicate this time now. May it be distraction-free. May we be able to cast our cares away. May we be able to just focus in on those things you have for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. In America, when a businessman retires from corporate life, he's usually awarded with some gift, perhaps a set of custom-fitted golf clubs, maybe a whirlwind vacation. But did you know that in China, when a man retires... He's awarded a much more practical gift. He is awarded a custom-sized coffin. Obviously, the Chinese grasp the inevitability of death. You know, some American corporations, they award their retirees with gold watches. Perhaps this is a more appropriate memento, for it reminds the person of how little time they have left. None of us are immortal. Unless the Lord returns in the near future, each of us here tonight has an appointment with the Grim Reaper. I read of a woman who was dying of cancer, and she only had a few months to live. And she explained to her daughter that by the time the leaves had fallen out of the trees, they would no longer be together. One day she looked out her window, and she saw her little girl with a ball of twine trying to tie the leaves back onto the tree. You know, many people are afraid of death, and they refuse to accept its inevitability. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that the devil has used the fear of death to keep us in bondage all our lives long. Death breeds a fear and a futility. We build our lives looking over our shoulders knowing that one day all that we've built will be taken away. Death breeds frustration. But Jesus came to destroy death and to set us free from its fear and its futility. Jesus rose from the dead to give us hope and assurance and confidence that death is not the end of anything. Death is the beginning of everything. Death may be earth's back door, but it is heaven's front door. Author Max Licato, he describes an experience from his childhood He and his friends had gone to a vacant lot, and they had dug out a long, long tunnel. 
When the construction was complete, Max's brother volunteered. He stepped up to the plate to test the tunnel. Max describes the long, torturous, nail-biting time it took for his brother to go from one end of the tunnel to the other. Would he make it? Would the tunnel hold or would it collapse? And all the kids held their breath for what seemed like hours until suddenly the brother emerged from the other end. His head popped up. Max says the vacant lot erupted in a celebration. Suddenly the kids were free to follow. They knew that the close was clear. There was nothing to fear. You know, it's easier to enter a tunnel when you know that there's another end. For three days, humanity held its collective breath as Jesus entered the long, dark tunnel of death. Would he emerge or would he be trapped? Tonight, we discover the joy the disciples experienced when Jesus' head popped out the other end of the tunnel. Jesus removed fear and futility from death. In essence, he declawed the lion. He stripped death of its power to generate fear and steal joy and cloud our future. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope and assurance. It takes our lives out from under the shadow of death and brings us into the light of God's eternity. Matthew 28 to me is the most important chapter in your Bible. It records the very foundation of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. If Jesus remained in the clutches of death, Christianity is no different from any other religion. It's reduced to empty speculation, just a vain philosophy. But if Jesus rose from the dead... That means that He is God's chosen, that He can forgive our sin, that He can deliver on God's promise of eternal life. Well, Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus begins with His burial. Chapter 27, let's begin reading in verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The disciples had fled. They had forsaken him. But here at the foot of the cross, we find three women watching Jesus be crucified. Mary, Mary, and Salome, the mother of Zebedee's sons. You know, it's interesting that these women were last to leave the cross, but they were first to the empty tomb. We'll come back to that in a moment. You know, men can learn a little about devotion and commitment from women. I'm convinced of that. Apparently, a whole sorority of ladies from Galilee had followed Jesus. But Matthew mentions three whose lives had been transformed by him, so much so that they were there with him at the foot of the cross. The first was Mary Magdalene. She was the woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. The second was Mary, his own mother. After pledging to God her womb and submitting to the birth of his son, she also gave her whole life to Jesus. And then third was Salome, Zebedee's wife, the mother of both James and John. You remember Salome was the woman who asked Jesus if her sons could sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand in glory. She was thinking, of course, of positions of honor. 
And Jesus responded to her, Woman, you do not know what you ask. Now imagine Salome. She's at the foot of the cross. She's looking up. She notices that there are two thieves that have been crucified at Jesus' right hand and at Jesus' left hand. Did she want her sons to occupy those two positions? Truly, she hadn't known what she was asking. Now when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. John 19, verse 38, you should read that later, says that Joseph of Arimathea had been a secret disciple of Jesus. He feared the Jews, and for fear of the Jews, he had kept his faith a secret. And yet now the crucifixion brings secret disciples out of the closet. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And it's interesting. All four gospel writers mention the involvement of Joseph of Arimathea. Often you get a a snippet from Matthew, but it's not in Mark, or Luke talks about this, or John talks about that, but they're they're not in others, and you kind of piece them all together to get the picture. But Joseph of Arimathea was so important that he's mentioned by all four gospel writers. Extra-biblical sources say that the Jews later became angry at Joseph, and they arrested him. And that Jesus delivered him from prison. And Joseph later testified to the chief priests about Jesus. Just a tradition that arose around him. As a matter of fact, legends involving Joseph abound. One suggests that he became rich trading in metals with people from the island of Britannia, the land of tin. Supposedly following the resurrection, Joseph of Arimathea led a missionary expedition to Great Britain. In the Middle Ages, Joseph became associated with the Holy Grail, you know, the cup or chalice that Jesus drank from the night before he was crucified. Another legend suggests that when the Roman soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus, that Joseph used the grail to gather up some of Jesus' sweat and blood. Supposedly later, Joseph took this same cup, the Holy Grail, on a voyage to Britain, and he hid it in the bottom of a well. Just some Legends that arose around him. Another interesting legend. When Joseph got home that night, his wife asked him, Honey, what did you do today? Did you realize what you did today is going to cost our family? We're going to lose lots of money. you giving away a brand new tomb. And Joseph responded, Oh, no, we won't lose any money. Jesus only needs it for the weekend. Verse 59. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Their emotions were still reeling. They were grieving. They were mourning their loss. Well, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will arise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And I'm sure the priests went home that night 
the night of Jesus' crucifixion, with the smug assurance that their problems were over, that they had silenced their chief critic forever. But by the next day, they were having second thoughts. And someone had recalled that Jesus had promised, after three days I will arise. And they all started feeling a bit uneasy. That's when the Jews approach Pilate and they demand a guard to be posted. Lest the disciples come and steal away the body of Jesus and foster this hoax that he had risen from the dead. You know, it's amazing how this fabrication is still around today. That the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then fostered this gigantic, elaborate hoax on a gullible humanity. Obviously, if that's your belief, you haven't done your homework. Here we're told that the Jews already thought of that possibility. And they took steps to ensure that it didn't happen. They had Pilate seal the tomb and set a guard of trained Roman soldiers to protect the tomb and to keep the disciples away as if the cowardly disciples would try to tackle a guard of Roman soldiers, trained killers in the first place. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. A Roman seal and Roman soldiers were plenty to scare off a band of already frightened and cowardly disciples. You know, the seal placed on the stone was a waxed Roman insignia. To break that seal was a crime punishable by death. The Roman soldiers were trained killers, and they were just looking for a reason to slaughter a few Jews. No way would the chicken little disciples risk death by seal or soldier and try to tackle this thing and steal the body and foster this hoax. A hoax, by the way, that they would never prosper from. That they would only endure persecution and suffering as a result. Never would these timid disciples overpower a battalion of special ops Roman soldiers. Hey, the disciples had nothing to gain with any kind of uh, fanciful actions here. As a matter of fact, the disciples have absolutely nothing to do with what happens next. Chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. Have you ever asked why Christians worship on Sunday morning? Why not Tuesday night? Or Friday afternoon? Or every other Thursday? Now we worship Jesus on Sunday morning due to what happened on a Sunday morning 1,976 years ago. Matthew notes, as the first day of the week began to dawn. But trust me, more was dawning at that moment than just a new day. It would be the first day, the dawning of a brand new era in the history of mankind. After this day, the world would never be the same. At that time, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene and this Mary was Mary from Bethany, the sister of Martha, remember, and Lazarus. They're the first people who arrive at the tomb on Sunday morning. Remember, after the body of Jesus had been taken from the cross, His burial preparations had been rushed. A special Sabbath started at sundown. And the women had been unable to properly anoint the body for burial. Now they've come to finish the job. 
and they hope that the Romans will move the stone for them. You know, even though Jesus taught his disciples that he would be crucified and would rise the third day, the possibility of a literal resurrection never really hit them. It was never actually brought into their real life consideration. Author Kent Hughes, he calls these ladies Saturday's children. Saturday's kids. They're depressed about life. They're overwhelmed with worry and overcome with fear. Saturday's kids have no hope. Their relationships are dying. Their outlook is dim. Their lives are ruled by sorrow and sulking and sadness. That's Saturday's children. But one event transformed Saturday's children into Sunday's children. A whole new breed of human beings. Suddenly their hearts burst forth with joy. Hope invaded their lives. Their relationships and their outlook took on a brand new meaning. Are you one of Saturday's children? Are you one of Sunday's children? The disciples are about to become resurrection people. In the future, they'll be persecuted and they'll be plundered. But nothing will get them down. For they will remember the empty tomb and the power of Jesus Christ and His ability to transform sorrows into joys. How could they ever forget it? A risen Savior specializes in turning setbacks into comebacks and sadness into gladness and the spices of death into the spice of life. Jesus specializes in turning Saturdays into Sundays. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. On my first trip to Israel, I visited a place called the King's Tomb. It's in a kind of a seedy part of Jerusalem. And so I had the cab driver just kind of stay out front and stay there and and keep his cab running while I ran in and into this little garden area to look and see what, uh, what was there. But it's a really interesting place because they have a, is there a picture? Yeah. They, you see the stone, you see the, the rolling stone between the, uh, the two walls, stone walls there? See the opening of the tomb? And you see the, the rock in the little slit there that rolls across the stone? You get a great picture of what the stone was like that they rolled over the tomb, you know, when they buried Jesus. There's a canal that's sort of cut in front of the face of the rock. And they take this huge two-ton stone and they roll it up into place. And then they hit a wedge, you know, a little piece of wood or rock, and they wedge it in underneath so that once the body's placed into the tomb, they kick out that wedge and the stone literally rolls down in place over the face of the tomb. The Gospels are consistent with this system. In Mark 16, the Greek word translated rolled means to roll up a slope or an incline. When the stone was rolled back from the mouth of the tomb, it was not only rolled back, but it was pushed up a hill. I find this interesting. John says the stone was taken away. When the earthquake hit... And when God rolled the stone off the face of the grave, He rolled it uphill. He sort of pushed it up. He took it away. The word John uses in the Greek is the word arrow. 
which means he picked up and he carried the stone. Apparently, the stone was literally blown off the mouth of the grave, that it literally caught air as it was rolled off of the, off of the face of the grave. Imagine a two-ton stone catches air and flies off the mouth of the tomb. One other point, we know from other post-resurrection passages that Jesus possessed a glorified body, free to be able to walk through walls. He was not bound by the laws of nature. He could walk right through the rock if he had chosen. Remember this, the stone was removed not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples and ultimately the world in to examine the evidence that Jesus was alive. Verse 4 tells us, And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Experienced, battle-tested warriors quiver in their boots at this miracle that's happened as they're standing there before the angel. You remember in the Old Testament when King Hezekiah had his back against the wall when he was surrounded by those Assyrian troops, God sent an angel, one angel, who in one night slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. I hope you know that angels are not plump little fat babies flapping their wings. Angels are serious soldiers. They are warriors of God. And here these trained Roman soldiers, they're quivering in their boots before these angels. Now Matthew mentions only one angel. But Luke tells us that here at the empty tomb there were actually two angels. And I like what Kent Hughes, a commentator on Matthew, suggests. He says these two angels were probably only those who elected to be seen. Many more, perhaps thousands more watched. For as Peter says, angels long to look into these things. I like that. That angels marvel at the salvation that has been orchestrated by Jesus. There may have been a million, billion spiritual onlookers surrounding and peering at the empty tomb. Only two actually appeared to the men who were there. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now recall when the angels appeared to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. You remember their first words? Do not be afraid. Here the angels greet these women. Do not be afraid. Here at the resurrection they communicate the exact same message. Jesus came into the world to end the tyranny of fear and replace it with the triumph of faith. The angel announces and invites He is not here, for He is risen. As He said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Jesus is risen, just as He said. And notice the past tense here, where the Lord lay. He no longer lays there anymore. He no longer lies there. He is alive where He lay. His body no longer lies on a cold stone slab. Hey, today, Jesus is out and about. And he's on the move. And he wants to engage you in your life. In 1885, when the British General Gordon discovered the tomb near Skull Hill, he took a soil sample. He had it analyzed for traces of decomposition. If there had ever been anything dead in that tomb, he wanted to know it. And when the results came back negative, he concluded that the tomb that he had found 
could possibly be the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person to secure a tomb on a timeshare program. He didn't need to buy the tomb. He simply borrowed a tomb. He signed up for a weekend in 32 A.D., just a three-night stay. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. And today, Jesus lives. How many of you are glad? Amen. I love what the angel tells the woman. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. In other words, don't take my word for it. Come on in. See the empty place. Examine the evidence. You remember, this was the kind of scrutiny that Paul invited when he was being interviewed before King Agrippa 30 years later. Remember, in Acts chapter 26, he challenges Agrippa. He says, the king knows these things, that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is a verifiable fact. Understand, at its very origin, at its beginning, Christianity wasn't built on some philosophical argument or some metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. No, Christianity and its claims were founded on a historical, verifiable, actual event. An event that took place in time and space. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you could have refuted the resurrection, you could have stopped Christianity in its tracks. It would have been dead before it got out of the blocks. The problem was, you can't disprove the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Christianity was founded on an event, though, that could have been proven true or false. Secular historian Thomas Arnold, he once wrote this of Jesus' resurrection. He says, I have for many years studied the histories of other times, and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence. Jesus arose. The stone rolled back. An angel appeared and invited advocate and adversary to look inside this tomb and see for themselves. Examine the evidence. If he's alive, if he's not alive, then just junk it. We're all playing a game anyway. If Jesus isn't alive, we'd be better off going home and getting drunk and staying that way. But if Jesus is alive, if he is alive, then there's hope. And he's Lord. And the best thing to do, the thing you desperately need to do, is bow down before Him and give your life to Him. And with every ounce of energy you have, serve Him for the remainder of your days. Because if He lives, we too will live. We'll meet our Maker one day. And because He lives, we want to live with Him. You see, all Christianity and really all of our lives hangs on the truth of the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, He deserves your and my total allegiance. Verse 7. And go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And indeed, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. And notice the sequence here. Come and see, then go and tell. You're not ready to proclaim the truth of Christianity until you've seen, until you've tasted, 
until you've experienced Jesus for yourself. Come and examine. Understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. But then go out and tell it to the world. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. You know, the women are still full of fear, but now a different kind of fear. This is now a good fear. This is not a frightening fear, but a purifying fear, a reverence. Notice God didn't entrust the news of the resurrection to a 60 Minutes news crew or to a professional journalist or to a published scholar or even to a bold preacher. No, He entrusted the good news to two women named Mary. I heard someone say that God entrusted the news of the resurrection to two ladies because he knew it would be impossible for the two women to stay quiet for very long. And he wanted to ensure that the news would be spread far and wide. I personally have a different theory. I would never think such a thing. Notice these two Marys were not just first to the tomb. Remember, they were last to leave the cross. You know, we read earlier, they accompanied the body of Jesus to the tomb with Joseph of Arimathea. In other words, they shared longer and deeper in his sorrows. Therefore, they're privileged of being the first to share in his resurrection power. I don't think that's an accident. I think there's a lesson here. That believers who take on the burdens of Jesus are those who will share most in the blessings of Jesus. Power is granted to those who understand his passion. This is why Paul prayed. He said it was his desire. He told the Philippians that my desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But that was not all. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Those that become acquainted with the fellowship of his sufferings are those who will end up knowing the power of his resurrection. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. I love this. When Jesus appears to these ladies, he commands them to rejoice. It's a command. You don't always feel like joy, but you can always take joy. That's what the word rejoice means. It means to take joy. He was alive, and he would be with them forevermore. And they are to squeeze joy out of that truth. Understand when Jesus died, the disciples' misconceptions died with him. Their dreams of a political kingdom and material prosperity were all shattered on the cross. But now Jesus tells them that he has plans that far exceed their expectations. That Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom. That he is going to pour out spiritual, eternal riches on those who fall at his feet and trust in him. There is still great reason to rejoice, he says. And isn't this how Jesus works in our lives? When we come to him, he shatters our selfish dreams and our ambitions. He sorrows us to salvage us. For when we abandon our plans, that's when he resurrects new hope. And he shows us his purpose. And he enthuses us with new new possibilities. And he shows us that there is still a reason to rejoice, even a greater reason to rejoice. And we begin to learn to take joy in his purposes and plans, not our own. 
in His hopes, not our ambitions. There's reason to rejoice. It's a command. Take joy in His promises and in His resurrection power. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And notice this. Notice He calls the disciples, My brethren. Tell my brethren. Can you imagine the relief it was to the disciples to hear those words? That even after their denial and their betrayal of Him, Jesus still considers them His brothers. Tell my brethren. What does that mean to them? It means that they're forgiven. That they're completely forgiven. It means that He still loves them. Rather than condemn them, Jesus wants to restore them. Perhaps you're a fallen follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been a little uneasy to meet Jesus after some of the things that you've done. Don't be afraid. You're still His brethren. He still loves you. Saturday's children walk about with grim looks on their faces. They've got no reason to rejoice. Life is bleak and burdensome. The guilt is unbearable. But Sunday's kids, oh my, they they walk around with a bounce in their step and a smile on their face. Their outlook is bright and their future is rosy. They know their sin is forgiven and that they're accepted by God. Once again, I ask you, are you one of Saturday's children or are you one of Sunday's children? Verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted them, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. It was a bribe. It was hush money. Saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept, while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Now here's the first attempt at denying the resurrection of Jesus. The Jewish leaders try to buy off these Roman soldiers. Say you dozed off. And the disciples stole the body. It was a preposterous notion. But it was the best lie they could come up with, they could concoct at the moment. You know, there are several reasons why their argument is so unconvincing. First, it was an obvious contradiction. I mean, if the Roman guards are sound asleep, how do they know that it was the disciples that came and stole the body? Tell them the disciples stole the body while you were asleep. Didn't make sense. Second, a Roman guard would never have fallen asleep on duty. Such an act would have been punishable by execution. Trust me, these soldiers love their lives more than a nap. And then third, who would believe that these cowardly, frightened fishermen could muster up the courage to take on a group of professional killers, trained soldiers? No one. This was a lame attempt on the part of the Jews to discredit the resurrection. You know, actually, it would have been much simpler for the Jews to just kill off Christianity, to just shoot it down before it ever got off the ground. All they had to do was come up with the body, just produce the corpse. But they couldn't, and they didn't, because Jesus was alive. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. 
It was commonly reported, but apparently didn't influence very many people. For on the day of Pentecost, remember, thousands of Jews came to faith in Jesus. Why? Because they were so convinced of the resurrection. That was one of the reasons. In fact, even some of the priests became believers, we're told in the book of Acts. All Jerusalem had been swayed and persuaded by the evidence of the resurrection. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Which mountain, we're not sure. But if you've ever been to the Galilee, you, you probably, like me, have your suspicions that this may have occurred on Mount Arbel. It would have been a perfect place for the disciples here to rendezvous with Jesus. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul tells us that over 500 people at one time and in one place saw the risen Christ. That mass, mass sighting may have taken place on that mountain there in Galilee. You know, here's another proof that the resurrection wasn't just some hallucination. You know, a few people with the right conditioning might hallucinate together, but how could 500 people in the same place at the same time, you know, fall victim to that kind of a hallucination? It doesn't happen to 500 people at one time. And yet 500 people in one occasion witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Verse 17, when the 11 disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, despite the evidence before them, the resurrection was so shocking to their senses that at first, some of the disciples, they just couldn't believe their own eyes. Is is this really him? I mean, they had seen him crucified. And Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 